Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of Theology in the Raw. November 6th, I will be in Houston, Texas. That is just just over a week away. I will be in Houston, Texas, doing a one-day leaders forum uh, in the north west end of Houston, Texas. Uh, if you want to go to that event, the one day leaders forum on faith, sexuality, and gender, you got to sign up like right now. Uh, it's going to be a full event and there's just uh, another week to sign up. So don't wait till the last second sign up now. If you want to attend the one day leaders forum on faith, sexuality, and gender in Houston, Texas, also in Denver the next week, Denver, Colorado on November 12th, I'll be doing a one day leaders forum on faith, sexuality, and gender. It's called a leader's forum. So if you're a church leader, if you're a Christian leader, if you're a thought leader, if you're a blogger, if you're interested in the conversation about faith, sexuality, and gender, then you should attend this event. It's, uh, they've been super effective and helpful for people that come. The reviews have been really, really good, actually. And I'm really excited what God's been doing through those one-day leaders forums. So you don't have to be like a full-time pastor or even a pastor at all. You can just be anybody who's interested in faith, sexuality, and gender, especially if you have loved ones who are LGBTQ or if you are LGBTQ and are wrestling with your faith, sexuality, or gender identity, then I very much would love to see you at one of those two events. That's uh, Houston on November 6th and Denver on November 12th. Okay, my guest on this show is one of my first, um, well, you know, it's the first local guest I've had in a long, long time. I have had some local guests in the, in the past, uh, but most of my guests are somewhere else around the country. But my guest for this show is John Whitaker, Dr. John Whitaker. And this guy is one of my favorite Bible teachers. He is just, he has this rare ability to dig deep into the text of scripture, to understand what is going on in the text of scripture. He's incredibly knowledgeable of the Bible, but he also can connect it to real life. He's a teacher, he's a preacher, and you're going to love this interview. So let's welcome Dr. John Whitaker to the show. friends, welcome back to another episode of Theology in the Raw. I am here with my good friend, John Whitaker, who is, I think my, I think you're my only guest to actually physically be in my basement. So this is, uh, this is kind of weird for me. Usually I like, I have a guest, it's like I'm looking at through the computer screen, but John Whitaker is, is local talent. So John, thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks, Preston. It's good to be with you. And, uh, Basement's not too bad, so this should work. <laughs> it's a little drabby. I feel like I'm in a prison cell down here with the concrete walls and everything, but yeah, we've, uh, we've transformed it okay. Um, so why don't we start by just giving us some background, who you are, and specifically like your ministry-related background. I mean, you've been a pastor, you've been a teacher, and now you're kind of doing this. We'll, we'll talk about what you're doing right now, where I think you're trying to figure out what the heck it is that you're doing, but um, give us some background on your, your ministry, uh, career, life experience, and so on. Yeah, yeah. So I, I grew up in the Tacoma, Washington area, but I moved to Boise, Idaho in the late 80s to go to Bible college. And so I went to Bible college actually here in Boise, then uh, went and did some grad school in other parts of the country, and then moved back here in the mid-1990s and started teaching at Boise Bible College, taught there for 19 years, and uh, taught 
theology, taught New Testament, taught preaching, uh, and whatever else needed to be taught. And so that was a, a huge part of my ministry experience was teaching uh, young men, young women who were interested in ministry, interested in learning the Bible. So I, I did that for 19 years. While I was there, I also helped plant a church out in a little bedroom community in the Boise area called CUNAN, the church's New Beginnings Christian Church, helped plant that and get that going, preached there and led some adult ed courses there for a little while and did that for about 11, 12 years. And then here, just a few years ago, I transitioned out of the college and I uh, preached for really the last four years at a, a local church called The Pursuit. At the time, it was a multi-site church, preached there for about four years, and then then transitioned out of that here just recently and, yeah, mm-hmm. doing some new stuff. So, now, so you... Would you say you're um, a theological pastor or a pastoral theologian? Like, are you, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, are you, because you have a, a obvious interest in just the academic side of, of Bible study. Um, you're an in-depth teacher, but then you're also very much a pastor. Is there, are you, would you say you're like 50-50 or do you not even like those categories <laughs> separated or? Yeah, I don't, I don't quite know how to answer the question. I do know this. I, I, I have a, pastor's heart. And so when I taught at the college, I always felt like I was a a professor with a pastor's heart. And then when I preached at the church, I always felt like I I was a pastor with a professor's heart. So those two are mm. deeply blended in in my heart and soul. I, I firmly believe that um, good theology should be rooted in the context of everyday life. And so mm-hmm. I like to think of preaching as like blue jeans theology, theology mm-hmm. for everyday life. And I even like to think of Bible teaching in a classroom, really, that should be rooted in everyday life. Yeah. And so those two always get blended together for me. Now, now, what are your areas, the areas that you specialized in is uh, homiletics or, or the... Um uh, what, what's the textbook definition of homiletics? The study of preaching? Or yeah, the study that, of yeah. preaching, okay. yeah. Uh, and you have a doctorate in preaching from Haddon Robinson? Yeah, He's, yeah. I did a, I did a, a doctor of ministry from Gordon-Conwell and studied under Haddon Robinson in preaching and the teaching of preaching. And so that was really, really helpful to me. Is it true I've heard that Haddon Robinson, when you're, when you're in his classes and you're going up to preach in class or whatever, like you're not allowed to take notes up? Like, oh, yeah. No notes. No notes. No notes. Not no even notes. like... Not even a sticky note. In fact, a buddy of mine who... <laughs> We were doing these classes together who has always been a full manuscript preacher. Yeah. And he first sermon in front of Haddon, he thought, well, I'm sure he won't mind if I just have a sticky note with at least my flow of thought. Haddon yeah. saw the sticky note, made him pull out of the Bible before he went to preach. And it was, really? uh, yeah, it was a little rough. So what's the, well, what's the logic? I, I could probably kind of guess, but we yeah, have, what is the logic behind that? I mean, did he give the reasoning behind that? Oh, yeah. and, and do you believe in that or? Yeah. 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 Haddon actually did his, his PhD, um, in kind of oral communication, and his his research was specifically in the effects of really limited or no note speaking versus mm-hmm. note speaking. And his studies found that that you may forget fifteen to twenty percent of what you prepared when you speak with little to no notes, mm-hmm. but your audience will remember eighty plus percent of what you say because you're so much more engaging. It feels more like a real conversation. So mm-hmm. you're you're looking eyeball to eyeball. You're talking with the people. Mm-hmm. You've obviously, this message is obviously important enough for you to know, so then it's important enough for them to know. And so mm. he, he was convinced from his studies that little to no notes actually meant you were far more engaging and your audience would actually engage with you, retain far more of what you say. Now, would he, would he say that when you get done at the program, you go into your churches, would he be adamant, like, don't ever do use notes? Or then is he, does he kind of tighten the shoelaces a little bit tight so that when you actually are running, it might loosen up a little bit? Like, is he okay with people yeah. having notes up there in the long run? Or <laughs> Yeah, I think he would. He, I mean, 
he would expect maybe you to bounce back, but he would he would strongly emphasize minimal notes. So if you got to use some notes, use some notes, but keep mm-hmm. them kind of brief, keep them short and sweet and to the point, and so you're not relying on your notes. So it seems more like a genuine conversation. Hmm. Yeah. So the main, the, yeah, the main point isn't the notes per se, but <laughs> are you making eye contact and talking to your people yeah. rather than kind of talking like. Because you, you can tell, I mean, for instance, I mean, I, I, not not as much now, but I used to manuscript almost word for word. Now it's maybe 60, 80%. Um, but even then, like, I rarely, if ever, I'm looking at it. It's more for my own kind of preparation and going through it. And, I, and I'll even have it up there on the pulpit. Um, but I'm rare, rarely do I ever look down and read more than, I may glance at a sentence and then glance up and it recall, I kind of, re, I kind of know what I wrote down. It's highlighted or whatever. But I'm not like, there's such a difference between reading something and f- making it feel like you're reading rather than just actually yeah, speaking. Yeah. And that's his main thing, right? Yeah, just... that, that's really the main thing. Uh, although I do think he would say it's to your advantage to have maybe just like a half page or one page really? that's kind okay. of sketch notes so that as a safety net, if you really want it. But for the most part, you're, you've internalized the message and you're talking about mm. what, what you know. You, you know, he would say, yeah. look, when you get out, you know, photos of your kids or your grandkids you, you don't have to have notes because you know it you can just talk about uh, it and it's lively and the yeah. intonation is more spontaneous and free well that's going to happen if you if you aren't really relying yeah. on notes so just internalize your message and then speak it so way. so what happens because i've seen that done well i'm thinking like an andy stanley or you know several of the well-known preachers that or francis chan doesn't he doesn't even have like a sermon. I mean, he, his sermon prep is five minutes before he'll get a word from the Lord or something and <laughs> write it down on a napkin and then forget the napkin as he's walking up. That's actually a true story. I think he's, yeah. Um, but I mean, so, so there's the kind of people that are just obviously just really great speakers. Yeah. Who, they can just get up there. It's clear. It's engaging. Um, but then I, I do see a lot of people who are trying to engage the audience, try to be relevant and, there's several times that I'm like, man, it would have been good for you to write that message out ahead of time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because it's just, it just, there's so many wasted words. It's actually not that clear. There's a lot of kind of cliches. And sometimes they, I can tell they're trying to land a plane. That plane just keeps on circling the pulpit over and over and over. And yeah. they're starting to lose their audience and they don't even realize it. I mean, what's the, maybe, yeah. What, what goes wrong there when people are trying to be relationally engaging right. or whatever? And it's just, it's just doesn't. Yeah. How, how can they not do that yeah. and still be well, extemporary? And Haddon, Haddon would say, you should write your message out pretty much everything you want to say word for word. So oh. write the whole thing out, ah. internalize that, but don't take take little or nothing with you into, into the pulpit. So he was a huge advocate for writing it out because ah, it helps you get your thoughts yeah, clear. Okay. And he actually he would actually talk about the importance of learning to write for the ear, not for the eyes. So yeah. good oral communication, write the way you would speak it, but write it out, get your thoughts clear. And then that'll help you get your thoughts clear. Use that to internalize the message. And then from there, speak it with little to no notes. That makes sense. Okay. Cause that, that for me that, yeah, when you write it out, I found myself where I think something's clear in my mind, but when I start writing it out, I'm like, Oh yeah, that transition doesn't really work or whatever. Yeah. Like it actually helps me kind of process the, and when you write it out and then, you read through it a couple of times, set it aside. Can you remember kind of mm. the chunks and how you get from chunk to chunk of the message? And if you can't go back, look at it. It's like, why couldn't I remember? Is there a transition that's unclear? Right. Is there maybe that, that chunk really isn't necessary or is it out of order? Right. Figure out why you couldn't remember the flow. And then once you can remember the flow, you can talk about it because you, yeah. you've actually thought yourself clear. And doesn't he say like, if you can't 
remember where you're going and you're the one that's been preparing all week how do you expect other people yeah, yeah. coming in after fighting with their wife and kids rushing in yeah. five minutes late to yeah. sit down and remember what you're actually saying. yeah i mean yeah so huh. really think yourself clear and if it's i mean if there's a little bit of unclarity in the pulpit then it's a complete fog oh, yeah. in the, in the in the pew kind of thing is what Haddon would say. What so. are some, I guess, yeah, if somebody, if people are listening, they're, you know, maybe they're preachers, teachers, or maybe they're aspiring preachers or teachers, or maybe they're just doing some sort of public communication. Do you have any kind of like some real basic foundational, like if you were going to die in five minutes and wanted to tell the world about some big things about here's what you need to do to become a good speaker, preacher, teacher, what are some of those big key ideas that you would share? Huh. Um, let's focus on preaching. Okay. That's kind of what I know. Okay. Um, so if, if, if like the, the most crucial thing is you need to internalize the message. It needs to be something that matters to you. It needs to be something that's vital to you. You, you know, like, mm-hmm. in fact, my nephew just did some church planning assessment. He actually called me on the phone and said, they want me to do a six, seven minute little message. Mm-hmm. How would you per- put together a six, seven minute little message? And I was like, I'd pick a passage that already means something to you, that mm-hmm. you already know a little bit, it already has some connection to your life, mm-hmm. and, and then begin to wrestle with that. So, you know, take take something that matters to you, begin from there, you already have some confidence in, you know why it matters, that helps you get started, you know, and all mm-hmm. that. Uh, I would, I would want to make sure that you recognize that there's a relational component in speaking. You're not you're not just teaching the Bible or talking to people about the Bible. I mean, you're, you're talking to people about their life from the Bible, and that's critical. There's this relational component, and so take that, that text and set it in the context of people's real life. Help them see the connection mm-hmm. to that. Help them to see why it matters. The why is critical. Um, and then when you're actually wrestling with the text, I, I think it's really important to think of yourself as a tour guide through the text mm-hmm. so that you want to help point... Point to why does that matter, and point out this, and notice that, and check this out, and here's why that matters, and then bring all that together into one central, clear idea that you can kind of really drive home and mm-hmm. connect to people's life. Well, I guess on the flip side, when you look at other preachers and stuff, I mean, what are some? Do you see some common mistakes that people make in yeah. their preaching? We're like, man, if I can get five minutes of this guy. I can help him with, with this yeah. or that. In fact, guy or girl. We'll say. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Ironically, on on uh, on my website, I actually have a a little. A freebie that's available to pe- to preachers like six common missteps that that really? preachers make okay. and uh, one of them is failure to engage. You take off and you've been thinking about this all week, so you're warm to the text. Mm-hmm. These people just came rushing in, right? They've had a crazy morning getting the kids ready. Who knows mm-hmm. if they had an argument on the car on mm-hmm. their way to church? And and now you're ready to talk about this, and they haven't even thought about it. And you fail to engage. You take off driving away, mm-hmm. you know, to give the message, and they're like, "Where in the heck are we even going?" And so failure to engage is very common. Is that real beginning? Like yeah, the first right few the minutes? Yeah. Not only get attention, but help them know why they should listen. Why does this message matter? Okay. And, yeah. and uh, a lot of preachers, they can get attention. They can tell a funny story, but they don't any, in any way clearly connect that to why this message matters. That's okay. really important. Uh, being boring with the Bible, that's one of the worst things you could do. I mean, you don't no. want people to think the Bible is boring. So, And that happens oftentimes by going down so deep and dealing with, technical little details that no one really cares about or don't really matter. In fact, ironically, I just, my wife just texted me yesterday talking to her coworker at church the other day. And he was like, Oh, 
I heard this interesting thing that the apostle or the disciple that Jesus loved wasn't the, you know, the apostle John. It, it, it probably was Lazarus. And my wife was like, I have never heard that. Why does that even matter? So she's texting me that. And it's mm-hmm. like these little details that aren't really relevant or mm-hmm. going down so deep into the text and dealing with all these niggly theological details or Greek or Hebrew details. And it's like never coming up for air and people get lost down there and then mm-hmm. they check out and, you know, so boring people with with the Bible because you just have so many details. Um, failure to connect the Bible to life, as I already mentioned. Mm-hmm. I mean, these are all common mistakes that I yeah. think a lot of people make. One thing that I see too is um, I'm just I, I um, uh, disdain would be too strong, <laughs> maybe. But like just these Christianese phrases that aren't given concrete meaning. Right. We just talked about kind of spirituality and loving God and do you understand, you know, we've been forgiven and all these things are beautiful, wonderful concepts, but we've heard them so much and they are abstract until we show how they're concrete. Right, um, right. And I, sometimes I see people, they string together all these things and I'm like, I agree with everything that's coming out of your mouth. Uh, I believe it's all meaningful things, but it just is too abstract, too familiar, and it's just not, it's not really yeah, gripping yeah. me. You know? In fact, a hadonism, I think hadonism used to say was relevance is in the details. So mm-hmm. rummage through people's lives and remember all the different people in the, the, the room, and that's a really important thing. Again, mm-hmm. a lot, it's really easy for a preacher to speak to kind of his slice of life, his age of his kids, his mm-hmm. hobbies and interests. Think of people who are older than you, younger than yeah. you, new believers, unbelievers, mature believers. you got all these different people in the room, rummage through people's lives. How mm-hmm. does this, the truth of this text actually show up for the self-employed, the unemployed, the, mm-hmm. you know, the middle manager, you know, the blue collar, the white collar? I mean, all these different kinds of people to the people who are just brand new to the Bible and don't, I mean, mm-hmm. you know, and so relevance is in the details. So begin rummaging through people's lives. Think of the details where it fits in with people's lives. And then you mm-hmm. take those abstract pretty little Christian phrases and you can bring yeah. them down to, to life and say, this plays out this way, or this shows up this I way. I love the phrase rummaging through their life, <laughs> rummaging through their life. But that, that only comes with being a pastor, not just a preacher yeah. too. Yeah. The best preachers are probably good yeah. pastors too, that yeah. they know yeah. what's going on in people's lives. You, you mentioned just real quick, you mentioned your website. What, what's your website? And we'll, we'll come back to that at the end, but yeah. what's the case people are wondering? JohnWhitaker.net. So I didn't okay. get .com. I didn't get .org. <laughs> those were those domains were owned by other people, so I got .net. So JohnWhitaker.net. Well, that's a common name, John Whitaker, so I'm surprised you even got that. Yeah, so that's, yeah, yeah. That's good. Right. Two T's. W-H-I-T-T. So you got Two T's. Sure. Okay. Two T's, yeah. Whitaker with a K. Yeah, with a K. <laughs> and you offer all kinds of, like, coaching services. You have classes on there, podcasts. Like, this is, you live in the space of connecting uh, in-depth Bible study, teaching, preaching to everyday life of the average person. That, yeah. That's, that's, yeah. Your, that's kind do. of my passion. That's my yeah. heart. So yeah. John Whitaker.net. We'll, we'll come back to that and, and talk about some resources he has on there. But, um, uh, Oh shoot. What was I going to say? This happened again last time on the podcast. I told you I had a major, a, a, gr- a great question and it just like lost me. Oh, Oh, um, what is the role of humor in the sermon? So two extremes are, you know, the most effective sermon will be super funny. People will be rolling on the ground laughing all the way to <laughs> don't, joke behind the pulpit, yeah. you know, like that's just, you're just entertaining them. You're not teaching a word. And yeah. do, you, do you have like any opinions on that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, I think, I think humor needs to be appropriate to the subject. Humor needs to be appropriate to the audience and humor needs to be appropriate to the speaker. Like personally, I'm not a stand up comic for right. me to try to be, you know, try to tell jokes, try to be super funny is just not going to feel natural. It's going to seem forced. The audience can tell they'll see through it. And yet, I get, 
I get laughs in my sermons. Mm. And so, but just being you. But You're just not being me. To, yeah, and just, you know, throwing in little things that are just kind of me. And so I think it needs to be natural. It needs to fit... The preacher, I also think it needs to be appropriate to the subject. If you're take, talking about a really serious subject, you can, you can actually spoil the impact of the message by inserting humor because you're afraid of being too serious. Ah, and You diminish the kind of impact that you've already built. Yeah, you kind uh, of burst the bubble of the significance of the message. But at the same time, there's a sensitivity to, you do got to come up for air. You can't be serious for 30 straight minutes and all that. And mm-hmm. I also know with younger people, my... my my kids are 20-somethings, you know, so I know with younger people that my daughter always tells me, I, I like that speaker because he he's at least has some humor. He's funny. Mm-hmm. He he makes me laugh, and it lo- loosens her up and makes her more ready to, to listen. So I, I think it's got to be appropriate to the audience, the text, and everything. If like all that. those things are in place, I mean, it does seem... And I'm, I, I don't know if this is... I think it's probably proven psychologically, but, like, when you laugh, you just are more drawn into what the person's saying, what's going on. It's more interesting. You're, um, and I'm kind of like you, like I'm not, I'm a, I'm not a joke teller, but there are certain things I do. So most of them are kind of just like something will come to my mind. I have a split second. Do I say it? Do I not? (laughs) Oh, here we go. And I'll, I'll, I'll say it. And (laughs) And so sometimes, most of the time it works out pretty good and people laugh and I can just tell, like, especially if they're getting a little bit like, man, this is, this is good, but I'm getting kind of worn out. Like the laughter just, it's like this, um, it's, it's like popping like an energy pill, you know, during a marathon, just gives that burst of like, it gives you more, Right. space to keep talking about some serious stuff. And there's a relational connection in the speaking that um, people would rather listen to somebody who smiles, yeah. who has a twinkle in his eye, who lights up a little bit. They would rather listen to somebody like that than somebody who's just serious and somber all the time. And so I think I think the smile, I think the laughter, I think it's important. I think you see that in Jesus. In fact, hmm. um, John 15, 11 Night before Jesus is going to be crucified, he's sitting with his disciples in the upper room. He knows what's coming. He's been talking heavy stuff to his disciples all night, right? And they, he's been, there's this ominous cloud hanging over the night. And Jesus in John 15, 11 says, these things I've spoken to you, that my joy might be in you mm-hmm. and your joy might be overflowing. Mm. Yeah. He spent three years <laughs> with these guys. There's no way he could talk about his joy with any credibility if he was a sourpuss. <laughs> Zero. No way. Yeah. If, if, if he wants him to have his joy and have that line come off with any credibility, then Jesus had to have a kind of joy that was desirable. Yeah. And I think we need to make sure we picture Jesus that way when we picture him speaking, when we picture him interacting with his disciples. There's a twinkle in his eye. There's a smile on his face. There's a light, a brightness mm-hmm. about him that, that people would look at and say, Whatever that guy has, I want it. Yeah. I want that kind of joy. I don't know that we often think of Jesus that way. I certainly know. I mean, I had a, a whole semester's course on the doctrine of God. Mm-hmm. Talk about the attributes and the works of God. N- never once did we talk about God's joy. Never oh, once. Wow. Huh. You know, three hours a week for 15 weeks, 45 hours talking about the nature of God. Never talked about his joy. So I, that, that intrigued me. So I actually went to the library and started flipping through all these systematic theology books. Not a single one brought up God's joy. And yet, wow. yet the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, joy. <laughs> joy. It's the second one listed, and the Spirit can't give what He doesn't have. And all those other attributes, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, those are all attributes that God 
has. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, so joy should radiate yeah. at least appropriately in appropriate ways, even in your preaching, because it's a mark of the Spirit's work in your life. It's a characteristic of Jesus. Characteristic. Mm-hmm. I would say Jesus, God, the Spirit are the most joyful people in the universe, and wow. we ought to at least embody that to some degree. There's a book there, John. You, even, <laughs> you talked about possibly writing a book, The Joy of God, or something like that. Or, or Yeah. Oh, that's good. Yeah. A couple more things on preaching, and then I want to get to some other topics. What's the role of like physical posture? Um, and just some examples. I mean, the guy that's kind of walking around on stage, you know, versus the guy that's kind of behind the pulpit. Uh, hand motions, no hand motions. Like, do you have any? Are there any kind yeah. of like? What does the rule book say about <laughs> that kind of stuff? Yeah, I don't. I don't know if there is a rule book. Again, I think it needs to be natural. And if you, mm-hmm. I actually used to make my students occasionally do this as an assignment in one of my preaching classes at the college, where I would have them. All right. Uh, before the next class session, I want you just to watch conversations in the library and in the cafeteria on campus and just watch how people talk and then come back to class and just see what you see. And what you see is you see smiles, you see laughter, you see hand motions, you see body movement, right? You don't see someone being mm-hmm. stiff and stoic behind, right. uh, you know, when they're talking. They move, they laugh, their head moves, their hands move, their feet moves, their whole body's into it. It should look that way when we're mm-hmm. speaking. You know, my... <laughs> Funny story. I've got time for a funny story. But yep. when my son was in fifth grade, the school he went to used to do this, this speech meet. And so they would memorize like a poem, a passage of scripture, or a piece of literature, and then they would deliver it. And the school had this whole rubric, and they would evaluate these elementary school kids on their, mm-hmm. their delivery of the, the, their speech. The kid that, and that was a close friend of my son's got the highest ranking in the this, this school. It was a superior and all of that. And in the, the 20 by 20 foot classroom, it was awesome. Mm. Well, they... The, the, all those that got excellence or superiors got to deliver in the gym before all the student body, before parents and all of that. So they go deliver it. So Ryan, this kid who got a superior, best score in the whole school, did a great job. It was smooth. It was polished. It was wonderful. My son goes up to deliver it. Well, my son's a true extrovert. He's very mm-hmm. expressive, loves drama. He goes up to deliver his. Uh, Ryan's gestures were small mm-hmm. and they were polished and they worked great in a 20 by 20 foot classroom. But in the gym, you could barely see them. My son goes up on stage as a fifth grader mm-hmm. and he's doing this piece from The Hobbit. Very expressive, very loud, uh-huh. huge vocal variety, hands all over the place, body moving all over the place. And the audience, you could see them lean in in that moment. So the different venues. So if you're if you're in a small group Bible study, 15 people, and your hands are going all the place, you're getting all right. emotional, like yeah. that, that's going to be kind of awkward, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah it's too much. Even, even if you're being video and you're, you're, the picture's being cast on the screen, it mm-hmm. might be too much. You know? okay. But in a, in a big room where, where you know, it's mm-hmm. you, your, your movements need to be big enough to fill the room and be seen. I've, I've got a buddy of mine who, he actually studied... He, he studies a lot of stand-up co- comedians as kind of a way to learn how to speak. Not, not to be a comedian, but just their... Yeah. I, I think even Mark Driscoll said this. Not, gosh, I haven't mentioned his name in <laughs> three years. But um, that, you know, who else can hold a crowd for two hours just speaking consistently? Yeah. You yeah. know? So yeah. there's something they're doing that... It, anyway, the whole point is he actually goes up and he holds his Greek Bible to keep his hands from flaying all around because he apparently what he said is like kind of a, it kind of is what a law of speaking. You shouldn't be doing all these wild yeah, gestures. Yeah. And, but he, I don't know. He even said like Francis Chan does that and that's not what you're supposed to do. But I'm like, but it's like you said, it's, it is natural. Like yeah. that. The, no, I don't know too many people to say, Oh, it just seems so awkward. His hands are flying yeah. all around or John Piper or whatever. Like they have these kind of signature postures. I, I, I mean, even now my hands are flying. I mean, I, <laughs> I kind of do that too. But, um, so you would say there is no that, that being natural, um, is the most important thing, not 
moving your hands, not moving your hands, holding something, not holding something. Yeah, and, yeah, being natural and and having it fit again the, the message. It should yeah. fit. Okay. Okay. Last thing uh, with, with speaking passion. Um, uh, I'm, I'm so like a John Piper, even like a Francis Chan, um, or since I already mentioned him, Mark Driscoll. I know he's just a <laughs> lover, hate, lover, hate him kind of guy. But um, you know, very passionate speakers. But then on the other hand, you have someone like a, I think like a Rob Bell, who is just very. I wouldn't say he's very passionate. He's just very clear in in his. Um, He's very comp- he's very compelling, provocative, and he can hold a crowd for two hours just by kind of talking, with little to no passion. Um, what role does passion have in, yeah. in speaking? Yeah. You know, no, it's a it's a good observation. It's an important observation. I think um, passion is really a byproduct of caring. So passion huh. boils down to caring about the message and caring about the people getting the message. Mm-hmm. And that can show up in different ways in different people, right? So mm-hmm. Rob Bell clearly cares about, particularly when he was preaching, he cared about his yeah. message and he cared about this content and he cared about the people getting this content. And it showed up mm-hmm. differently than it does for someone like Francis Chan or anything like that, right? Mm-hmm. But it still showed up in him caring about the message and the importance of this message and these people mm-hmm. getting the message. It mm-hmm. showed up in the way he delivered it. It showed up in the thoughtfulness. It showed up in the phrases. And, mm-hmm. and in fact, Rob Bell was one. He would, he would write his whole thing out, write it out tight, but then he would deliver it no notes because he wanted to engage with his audience. He wanted to connect. Mm-hmm. And he would speak when he was at Mars Hill and Grand Rams. He would speak in the round with the audience around him so he could look at everybody and see mm-hmm. everybody because mm-hmm. he wanted people to get it. it was a, he still cared about the message and passengers by product of that. Or Francis... Francis is just so dynamic, so expressive. You see it in his face. I mean, mm-hmm. his eyes, yeah, his yeah. face. You hear it in the, the the pauses. You hear. I mean, he cares about this message, and that's that's, that's the common denominator. That's the common denominator. Is the okay. caring about the message and wanting people. To, this is important. This matters. Yeah. I want you to get this. Mm, that's good. Good. Cool. All right. So um, theological. Uh, let's 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 talk about some theological topics. I mean, you are a, a theologian. You've taught through how many? Almost every book in the New Testament on a, on an in depth well, level. I mean, when I was teaching at the college, twenty one out of twenty seven New Testament books. Throw in okay. preaching, I've probably hit another another four or five of them. So I've got most of them I either yeah. preached through or taught through. So, are, do you have any like theological hobby horses? Like if <laughs> if someone says, "All right, John, you could teach one class." What you got? You know, a bunch of students for 45 hours a semester, you know, uh, three hours a week. You could do anything, any topic, any book, any whatever. Like, is there something or <laughs> one or two or three that stand out that you would love to tackle? Wow, that. And, and, and also, like, why would you want to do that? Yeah. I don't know if I could fill a, you know, a full semester's course with this. But this is a theological hobby horse to me. And it's the theology of spiritual growth. Okay. Yeah. Um, I, don't, I don't know that we, we think about that. Theologically, so you get you get popular level stuff on spiritual growth, but you don't always get stuff that's rooted deeply in mm-hmm. the New Testament and in biblical theology and and all of that. And and uh, or I think for the last fifty, sixty years in the American church, we have kind of boiled down salvation to forgiveness only. So mm-hmm. you get your sins forgiven, you're justified. Ooh, we could talk about justification. That's important. That's wonderful. You need to know that it's safe for you to be a work in progress, and your sins are forgiven. You've got your ticket to heaven. But we almost never talk about regeneration. We don't talk about Mm. sanctification and how those two play together. What does it mean to be a new creation in Christ? And or when you look at Romans chapter six, and you know that if you know what shall we say? That shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? May it never be? And you know how shall we who died to sin still live in it? What does that mean? Yeah, died to sin because 
I don't feel like I'm dead to sin every day. There's times where I feel quite alive to it. So what does it mean? Paul says we're dead to sin. What, what, that, what does that mean? What does that mean? <laughs> I, struggle, I struggle to Romans 6. Romans 7, I, oh, I, I can't. Well, and even Romans 7, there's <laughs> divergent views on yeah. Romans 7. But when you put that in the context of 6, 7, and 8, there's an important principle there, particularly when you get to chapter 8 and the, the whole theology of what Paul is dealing with there. And then not just theology for theology's sake, but practical theology. Well, then how does that play out? And mm-hmm. so how do I live as dead to sin? You know, and then you put that with Colossians chapter three and you, you think, well, okay, he says in Romans six, we're dead to sin, but Colossians three, he says, so you need to put to death the parts of your sinful self. What does mm-hmm. that mean? How do those two go together? Am I dead or do I need to put it to death? And Figure all that out. The answer is yes, right? It's kind yeah, of both, yeah, it it's already kind of both not yet tension? Yeah, 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 there's that tension. And you see that even in Romans 6 when you come down a little mm-hmm. bit later. He's, you know, just a few verses later, he talks about that. So that theology of spiritual growth, theology of new creation, theology of sanctification, mm-hmm. but that theology then, how does that play out in everyday life again? Mm-hmm. I just think that's critical for people to think through mm-hmm. and understand and, and help people really wrestle with that. So that's kind of a theological yeah, hobby horse yeah. of mine that's... That's really important. Be- yeah. Best book in that area? Did you, or do you, do you know one that hmm. really captures it the way you would put it? Um, I, books that have influenced me have been, a lot of them have been by Dallas Willard. Okay. Um, more on the practical side, but his spirit of the disciplines, mm-hmm. his divine conspiracy. There's some really, really good stuff in there. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as ones that actually engage with the text and do some good exegetical biblical theology and then tie that to life, I don't know of a whole lot. Hmm. Sadly. Like a biblical theology, a of biblical theology of spiritual yeah. growth. That's that's huh. another book I've been actually. I've got an outline. Yeah. I've got some thoughts on that. <laughs> There's a guy down at Talbot or Biola that I uh, I Talbot Biola. They kind of go together. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I, oh, I For some reason, when you said that biblical theology is maybe it's sp- biblical theology of spiritual formation, it might have just came out. Or maybe I'm yeah. not, maybe I'm just drumming up in my own mind, but something tells me there's yeah. somebody out there. Well, it makes there. sense. I mean, they've got their whole school of spiritual formation yeah, down yeah. there, and so they, they do a lot with yeah. it. And they've been influenced by Dallas Willard as well. Right, right, right. So. All right, so uh, theological themes or doctrines that you've changed your mind on over the years. <laughs> um, if, there, if there is any. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully. Yeah, theological themes... Um, well, you mentioned Romans 7. I was okay. taught one view of Romans 7, okay. and I, I've changed my specific understanding of Romans 7. Okay, so what, what was that? Yeah, what was that? Uh, I, I was taught that Romans 7 describes the normal Christian life. Right, right. Uh, I no longer believe that. Because... I don't either, actually. <laughs> I, when I referenced it, it was, I was referencing the popular view of it, yeah. which isn't true. The popular <laughs> We're on the same page on that. Yeah, so, but yeah. yeah. Well, and the reason for that is just textually, what's the question Paul is answering? Yeah. And the question Paul is answering is a question about the Old Testament law, the place of right. the Torah, and that right. Torah could not free people from the power of sin. Right. How do we get free from the power of sin? Thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then you jump into chapter yeah. 8 with... You know, so the spirit and all of that. And so I've changed my view on Romans chapter 7 that Paul is asking and answering a question about the the role of Torah that the spirit does what the Torah could not. So, yeah, I mean, I I think Romans 8 comes after Romans 7, and it's written in direct response to the failure of the law to deliver you from the power of sin and death. And then Romans 8 is the answer to that. Romans 8 is describing the Christian. Romans 7 is describing the frustrated Jew trying to find 
salvation, repentance, and grace of the law. Yeah. I mean, yeah. to me, it just seems really clear. I don't know. <laughs> Textually, you know, there's a couple, like, yeah. maybe statements that whatever, you know, yeah. that are hard. But, like, I, I think where people run into is they, they think categories of believer, non-believer. Right. They're not thinking of the category of a religious Jew in the first century. Because people say, well, wait, if he's not a believer, he wouldn't say the, the law is holy, just, and good. I'm like, name me one first century Jew that wouldn't say that. Right, like, exactly. Yeah. 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 I think you're exactly right. I think we make a category mistake there. But yeah. So I've changed my position on that. Um, Calvinism, Arminianism, uh, loser salvation, yeah. women in ministry, anything like any of the hot button things or um, creation, yeah. creation. Yeah, you know? I'm, I'm a moderate Arminian. Okay. <laughs> uh, and I and I say that meaning that I like, you know, I I have a strong view of sovereignty. I just don't think sovereignty equals causation. And so I think God controls all things. He doesn't cause all things. And so I have a very okay. strong view of sovereignty. I think there's a difference between those two. And so I, I think I might agree with that. Would that make me? A... <laughs> I don't know. I keep trying to hang on to my reformed lineage, but every time I <laughs> think through something, people are like, yeah, that's not really very reformed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I know. Huh. Um, I actually had a, in my doctoral program, Dwayne Lipfin, who at the time was the president of Wheaton College, started poking fun at me for being a, a, an Arminian. And finally, I'd had enough. And I said, look, a moderate um, Arminian and a mar- moderate Calvinist oh, yeah. are much closer to yeah. each other than they are to the, the hyper versions of their own camp. Right, right. So I'm, I feel like in some ways I'm closer to a moderate Calvinist than I am to a hyper Arminian. And yeah. So for me, whenever I talk about like my whatever being reformed or Calvinistic for me, it really comes down to the very narrow understanding of uh, God's agency and salvation. It's the area that I've done the most study on, but like when it comes to like, so I think, you know, God, God's agency is prior to and causative of human agency, which most of our Armenian friends say, well, yeah, <laughs> we just do the whole predestination thing that I right. think is where the debate is. And for me, I, for whatever reason, I just haven't found that conversation as, interesting as I used to. Uh, I think it just gets wrapped up in so many philosophical assumptions that the Bible just doesn't make. And so we start projecting these things on the text. And yeah. I think the text is quite diverse and there's tensions, you know, yeah. I mean, the, the, the classic example of God ordaining all things and yet prayer moves and changes the heart of God. And I yeah. think both are true and I'm yeah. okay with the mystery. That... Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I do think what you just said there is something that as I have walked with Jesus, the longer I've walked with Jesus, being more comfortable with mystery yeah. and being okay to hold my belief with a little open hand and say, there's mm-hmm. a lot of, th- there's a lot of things I feel like I know for more certain. And there's a lot of things I feel like I don't know at all that I mm-hmm. used to think I know, mm-hmm. you know, where I, I, I have, which is the way it should be. I feel like when, I, when people aren't, the older they get. And the more they said the Bible, when that doesn't happen, it just kind of makes me nervous. Yeah. <laughs> Theology should lead to humility and yeah. we should have a little more circumspection about what we know. I'm yeah. less willing to argue about things that I maybe was more willing to argue about when I was younger. I, uh-huh. I'm more willing to hear the other person's view and say, okay, but what about, and just think that through sure. together. And so I, theologically, I'm, I think I'm a little more humble and gracious than I used to be. <laughs> um, yeah. I think that's good. Um, there's things that I think are more important to talk about that uh-huh. now that, that uh, I, it bothers me when I hear what feels like those are 100-year-old debates or even 500-year-old, you know, Reformation debates when it's like, as a pastor as a pastor and a theologian, I'm like, 
in an advanced Bible college course at a seminary or a Bible college, I think we should be talking about the theology of some of the stuff you're wrestling with, sexuality, mm -hmm. because that's the stuff you're going to wrestle with as a pastor. If we're yeah. training pastors, you're going to deal with homosexuality and all that, or divorce and remarriage. I've been yeah. asked the theology of that far more than I have. Can you give me the Reformed view of justification versus, you know, and, and it's like, so I just feel like there's, there's theological debates and yeah. issues that are more critical pastorally today that we should be training yeah. young, up-and-coming Christian leaders in, you know, not that they don't need some familiar with maybe some of those older theological issues and all that. But man, there's yeah. stuff that just needs to be addressed so that pastorally they're prepared to wrestle with. Well, yeah. those kind of questions, you know? Man, I think, I think um, this might be an overstatement, but it, well, maybe not. I, I think anybody graduating a seminary should have a, have written a very long in-depth paper, several papers on divorce and remarriage, because it's going to come up over and over again, over and over again, and sexuality and gender. Um, much more than the kind of bigger theological yeah. thing. Have you yeah. rest? So I, the, the divorce and remarriage, I have not done a deep dive into that. I've done enough to know that, oh, it's a little more complicated than kind of a surface reading of the text. Have, have you, do you, have, do you have a real clear view on what would be a, a biblical divorce and remarriage that would yeah. be allowed or not? Or is yeah. it... <laughs> <laughs> is it just um, sexual immorality, adultery? Is it, I mean, uh, yeah, abusive yeah. situations or something? Or, I mean, <laughs> I, 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 I think it's hard. And yeah. I, here's so, I think you know Jesus allows for divorce and remarriage mm -hmm. in the case, obviously, of uh, sexual morality. Okay, First Corinthians seven and the Apostle Paul dealing with the issue there. Mm -hmm. uh, um, he he seems to say, well, look, if you're married to an unbeliever and they and they, and they leave. leave yeah. Don't force them to stay, and it's right. and you know, and, and you're and then you're released. You're you can, released, which you're means free. you can remarry. You can right? remarry. Okay. And, yeah. Well, and that's an important consideration. And it, my understanding is that in the Jewish context, and you know, particularly out of which the New Testament comes, that if if a divorce is legitimate, then re remarriage is legitimate. So divorce. Oh, one equals the other. One equals the other. So if 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 the divorce is quote unquote legal remarriage is legal. Those two necessarily go together okay. in, in the Jewish context. Uh, I may need to do a little more work on that, but yeah. that, the work I've done, that's, that's, that's kind of where I've, I've, I've ended up at. So yeah. I think we have those two cases for certain in Scripture. Okay. Beyond that, I, yeah. I don't know, you know, and pastorally, I think it's really challenging, particularly when you have an abusive situation and some of that, I think there needs to be some consideration for the well-being yeah. of the people involved, even if that means I think you might need to recuse yourself from the situation for mm -hmm. your safety, for your well-being, for your kids, or anything mm -hmm. like that. Um, One thing I've been thinking about, and maybe this is kind of an, a no-brainer to people that have done a deep dive study, maybe there's tons of books that go this direction, but... One thing I've been considering is it seems like the divorce commands, the divorce concerns are, are driven out of a protection for women yep. because they weren't even allowed to divorce in that culture. Yeah. And, or even like the, the, the woman at the well, we always think she's some promiscuous person. Well, you've had five husbands and the one you're, well, no, she, she's not doing the divorce. She's, they're trading her in. They're trading her. She's been used and abused yeah. by all yeah. these men. And yes, she's technically living in sin, living with a guy, but she's more of a, a symbol of not, promise bold promiscuity but like of victimization she's a yeah. victim of yeah. male dominance so, that, so if if the direction that the thing that's fueling jesus is very radical kind of divorce commands is a concern for women then i think you could take that direction toward maybe maybe and i'm just thinking out loud on a podcast in front of thousands <laughs> of people but then then could that trajectory yeah. maybe 
include other aspects of a marriage mm. that is damaging towards women. I yeah. just, you no, know. and I think it's, that's important to realize the heart behind it is this protection of the well-being of mm-hmm. the woman, you know, the person that's being divorced. I think yeah. there is a protective element there that we have overlooked. Yeah, yeah. All right, so let's talk just, let's, we can, uh, f- final, uh, final lap here. T- tell us what you do now. So as of June, you are, um, You've, you've moved outside of full-time pastoral ministry, and uh, now you're in this kind of, this space that kind of, kind of like, well, kind, kind of like what I do. I mean, I have this whole organization thing on the side, on the side. <laughs> <laughs> so, more like, yeah, right in front of me. But um, yeah, you, you're now kind of a, a, a serial Bible teacher. Is that, <laughs> is that kind of your brand? Yeah. Tell us what you do and yeah. what, what, in what ways you can maybe help somebody who's looking for help in terms of like coaching or you know, yeah. Bible teaching. So let me just back up and tell you how I got to where I'm okay. at a little bit. Yeah. When I was at um, the last church I was, I was ministering at, you know, we were baptizing people, bringing a lot of people to faith in Jesus. And so we were, we were baptizing 100, 120 people a year. And so we had all these new believers, but we, we didn't have a really solid system or mechanism for helping them go from new believer to mature believer. And mm-hmm. the various things have been tried over the years. I mean, it's just like didn't work and you couldn't get people to show up. And Aside from people going to small groups, that was about all we had, and and those are important and they're necessary, but we didn't even have a clear thought out process. So we were working on all of that. We were working on this process. In the midst of that, you know, our, we've got our small group ministry, and I'm looking at our small group leaders, and we have no good training for them, and we would try to do trainings, and you'd get a small percentage of them to show up. And, and then I'm looking at that, and I'm thinking, well, why is that? And I I hear pastors in their frustration say, well, it's complacency. It's a priority issue and all Mm. that. I get that. I get the frustration. And in some cases, I think you're right. In other cases, I think, look at our world. Look at our world and how busy people are. Look at how crazy people's lives are. And people are working weird schedules and, you know, four twelves and then, you know, three twelves. And and when they're home, they want to be with their family and their kids are in sports and school functions in the evening and life is nuts. And, and so it's like, man, people, they don't even watch network TV anymore. They watch their TV on Netflix or Hulu or Prime mm-hmm. or whatever it is, you know. And um, if they want to fix their plumbing, they, they, they get on YouTube and they just YouTube it. And we're used to on-demand mm. entertainment, on-demand resources for what we need. Why don't we seize that for Jesus and the gospel? So, Golly, that's awesome. Man. So that's sort of the heart behind what I started doing. So it's like, let's, let's try to put together some resources that can help Christians and can help churches grow each other to maturity in their discipleship mm-hmm. process or discipleship plan. So I'm creating some online courses. Uh, right now I'm working on four core courses that I think take somebody somewhere. They help move somebody in their understanding of scripture and how to read scripture well and, and what it means to be a believer and how to grow as a mm-hmm. Christian. And so Bible survey, Bible study skills, core beliefs, and the basics of spiritual growth. And mm-hmm. so I'm working on those four courses. I got two done, third one about 60% done. It's all filmed, just being edited. Fourth one, I'm hoping to have done by the end of the year. Lord willing, it's just taken longer than I thought to get all these done. But those four courses that can be used in churches because they really help you. Here's the big story of the Bible, and here's how all the books fit in. So when you read the Bible, you at least know where you're at. When you listen to a sermon, you know you know where you're at so you're not lost. Bible mm-hmm. study skills helps you read the Bible with greater understanding so you understand the culture a little bit, and you got to look at that and what the Bible really is and how to read it well. Core beliefs is if you have the same worldview of Jesus, what do you believe, what do you value, and then basic spiritual growth. How do we how do we move from new believer to mature believer, and mm-hmm. what's our process in that? What's God's part in that? How do you walk by the Spirit, some of those things. So I'm putting those together. I've got a podcast it's where I just want to teach the text. There's a lot of good Christian podcasts out there. 
including this one here. <laughs> is it Bible and Life? Bible and Life. And you just walk through like yep. short, what, 15, 20 minute episodes? You walk through passages? Yep. And, and yeah. I just want to teach the text in livable language. Yeah. And so just teach the teach a passage of scripture on that. So I've got that. I've got, I'm doing some preaching coaching. Uh, yeah, tell us about that. That's pretty unique. Yeah. Well, I, again, I, I want to help preachers avoid some of those missteps yeah. we talked about. I want to help them really be able to be... Um, Blue jeans theologians, where they're you yeah. know they're given the Bible in everyday language to people, and so connect the Bible to life, and also handle the text well. Bring those two together. So, exegete people's lives, exegete the text, bring those together, deliver a message. And so, I I offer some some one on one coaching where I'll mm-hmm. look over like three of your sermons that you send me. I'll watch those. Then we'll have a forty five minute consultation. Mm-hmm. We'll set some goals together, and then maybe four or five weeks later, I'll watch another message of yours and then we can follow up real mm-hmm. quick and say, hey, how does it feel like you're making progress on your goals? And so I've got that on my website. You can check that out as well. And and I I, I just think that's incredibly helpful. You know, we rarely ever get one-on-one coaching, you know, mm-hmm. and preachers and, and we, we don't get the kind of feedback that we want, you know, and our people either just they leave or they just tell us a good, good message. But we're looking for specific feedback that says, how can I get better? Or what was mm-hmm. unclear? Why was it unclear? And yeah, and so that's something I try to offer on that. It's kind of a one-stop shop for somebody that's just looking to like help improve the discipleship in their church. All the way yeah. from help help me to become a better preacher, help me to provide resources for my church to study, you know, to to go outside the sermon and learn the Bible in a practical way. Out, yeah. you know, yeah, um, yeah. That's uh, really what I'm after. Is seminary I, in a box. <laughs> <laughs> I want to. I want to. I want to see a a a renaissance of a revival of. Not just Bible knowledge for mm-hmm. knowledge's sake, but I want to see a revival of engagement with Scripture mm-hmm. that's that's life based, life focused, so that you can read the text, you understand the text, you hear what Jesus is saying, mm-hmm. and you can live it out. Or a preacher can study the text and deliver the text in a way that, that now people can say, "Man, that connects with my life." That's what I want. I that's I think that, that if God has given me any gifts at all, I think that's the the gift that's He's awesome, the, the, the gift yeah. He's given me, and I want to try to help other people do that. So that's what I'm trying to do. Cool. We'll see what the Lord does with it. I have no idea where it'll go. That's johnwhitaker.net. Yes, right? johnwhitaker.net. All right, so check out johnwhitaker.net. Uh, I can, uh, as I said in the intro, I can absolutely vouch for John. He was my number one draft pick when I planted the EBC campus up here. <laughs> and I was looking for teachers, and I was like, all right, if I got John Whitaker, then this thing might might work, even though it didn't work. Yeah, it didn't still, work. <laughs> whatever. We tried. We, we tried. tried. <laughs> we tried. Um, well, thanks so much, John, for being on the show. And again, yeah, check out his website if you're interested in studying the Bible on an in-depth level in a way that connects with aspects of real life. Thanks, John, for being on the show. Thanks, Preston.